It is time for the Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A episode part one of this week. Why do I know there's going to be two parts? Well, we're capturing this on a Monday evening, and I am almost done filing a embargoed story for tomorrow morning. And hey, there's more testing going on, and I just expect there will be plenty of questions that come in this week, and they're going to come in after part one. So I hope you enjoy this. Going to get to as many of your questions as I can. Looks like it might take two hours or so based on the word count. So see if I can speed that up at all. Have our guest first week in IndyCar guest episode lined up for Wednesday. I will announce that driver on Tuesday. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's been an interesting First day of this week already, uh, a lot of communication, texts, and otherwise with some IndyCar drivers. <sighs> Testing report just filed at Racer. We have our man Scott Dixon, fastest overall of the seven drivers who turned up for the first day of testing of 2021. This being done at Sebring. Dixie, a 5232 fastest he was a tenth faster than his teammate marcus erickson uh new ganassi man alex pillow was just a little tiny smidge behind that our french fry mr sebastian Bourdais, he was fourth fastest in his aj foyt racing chevy after him we have our man max chilton the man who puts his first name in all caps big on his hat from Colin Racing, another Chevy there. Dalton Kellett was behind Max, and then Jimmy Johnson closed the group. Other than that, boy, we got a lot of stuff to get through. Uh, where do we go first in all this, by the way, as we say thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. A little bit of music bed. Always love a bit, little bit of music bed to transition with here. Uh, we're going to go, we're going to start off a little train about Marco Andretti. Texted with Marco again today. And let's see. Said with Marco pulling back from full-time driving, it makes me wonder if there is another Andretti coming up. I'd hate to see the name leave as drivers, says Bob Gravel. Hey, Bob. Other than his cousin, Jarrett, I think cousin. I always get the bloodline thing mixed up. John's son, Jarrett. Jarrett's about the only one who jumps out as maybe, maybe, possibly being able to do something IndyCar related. I know I've been told there's a desire on Jarrett's part to do the Indy 500. He, by and large, focusing on sports car stuff of late. Know that Adam Andretti as well uh, from another wing in the family is also done uh, some sports car stuff too, but I would say Jarrett might be the closest, but I'd say there's still, Bob, a bit of distance. I've only heard of Jarrett as being exceptionally talented, but if we're just talking straight-up experience, open-wheel stuff, big, crazy, 230-mile-an-hour-plus speeds, that would be a massive leap for him. So if we are looking to add another Andretti name to the Speedway, that would be a project that needed to get started soon to get Jarrett ready for it. Uh, let's see, Mike Jablo, Damian Hellwell, Robbie Berggren, uh, Trip Hazard, who else? Uh, 
Siggy Dan from Reddit, Pamela Henderson from Reddit, uh, Northern Penguin 01, Daniel Summersgill, all Marco questions, team questions, Brian Herter related questions. So let's dive into that and continue the topic that Bob opened up. Should mention, by the way, that I invited Marco to join us Wednesday as our week in IndyCar guest. He politely declined and also said he's planning to remain kind of sort of off the radar until we get to the Indy 500. So I receive that as a bit of a telling thing as well. Marco's just wanting to enjoy some time doing something different in life. Granted, he is testing tomorrow, that being Tuesday, probably when you're listening to this at Sebring, but that's what he has coming up. Mike says, MP, we've read all the press release stuff about Marco semi-retiring, but what's the backstory? Lack of sponsorship, loss of leader circle money, other reasons inquiring minds want to know. Damien adds, if we're being honest, it feels like a relief that Marco is now going part-time. It's been painful to watch his performance and results over the last few years, and this might be the change he needs. Do you think he'll ever come back to IndyCar full-time? Do you see another driver in that car this season? Robbie adds, Marshall do you have any sense if Marco's step back is permanent or a one-year trial? Uh, got into this a little bit in the, I think, Saturday, Friday or Saturday week in IndyCar, the last one of last week. So I'll just dive into some of that because I know not all of you are able to keep up with every episode each week. The thing we've been hearing, which I mentioned is either 100% correct or 0% correct. Can't tell you. Don't work for the team. They don't show me their financials. But the thing I'd been hearing, uh, another colleague had been hearing as well, is that they were not in a great shape financially with Marco's car. Funding for the full season, shaky. Losing that million-dollar leader circle contract guarantee, which is about one-fifth to one-sixth of an annual budget, it's a big hit. Been hearing for a little while that... Getting all the money to run Marco in the 98, not really coming together as hoped. Therefore, not that it was in jeopardy, but hey, uh, we've got a couple months until the season kicks off and we're going to have to keep digging to find money to run that car. Now, I know that my pal and our colleague Robin Miller posted a bit of a reflection on Marco's career today that went over like a fart in church among the Andretti team and young Mr. Andretti as well. Not a surprise. There were many things in there that were critical, some of them extremely accurate, some of them obviously up for debate, but not here to weigh the merits of Robin's column so much, but just to point to the fact that in that, mentioned that the funding to do things is certainly a bit of a question. Going to get to the Marco decision to not drive part in just a moment. Looking at the press release, it stated in, I would say, possibly overstated, money wasn't a problem. Full budget for him to drive for the full season. He chose to step back, just wants to do the 500. I'll just share this little piece of what I consider to be a very basic tenet in any racing team, any business in general, and it is this. If you have all of the funding in place for an athlete to be an athlete 
and for the team to earn income from that athlete being an athlete doing that thing for the agreed amount of time, amount of games, amount of races, whatever it is. If you have the full budget in place, as the press release stated, and you have the athlete deciding, I'm only going to do one of the 17 events where that full budget is committed to, provided that full budget is there, I can't think of a single team that would say, oh, well, then that's cool. We're just not going to take that money. We're going to give that back. We're, we don't want it. We're not going to do a deal. As I understand just about every single IndyCar team to be these days, they are all in a situation of any money anybody wants to spend with us, we will take. We're not giving any of it back unless we have to. We Anything, bring it in. Come on. So just sharing something that didn't necessarily reconcile, as Mike pointed to, reading the press release. I realize that there's a second part to this, which is the public image standpoint. Wanting and needing everyone and everything to look strong and healthy and vibrant. No issues, no question. All is good. That's an important thing, right? Uh, you get the... Uh, you get the... The animal-looking week on the savannah... That's the one that everyone pounces on and tries to pick apart till there's nothing left on the carcass. I am certainly not saying Andretti Autosport is anything like that weak animal. I'm just saying that for a strong, proud, successful championship-winning organization like that, there are valuable reasons to not want to present anything, much less a single entry in a multi-car team, as being less than fully paid up, fully funded, and fully amazing. So... Let's figure that it's important to share that, Mike, because on one end you could say, oh, it's just all BS and they're bad people and telling us false things. There's some positioning uh, value here that we need to appreciate. There's also that thing where we go, look, no team can really truly afford to turn money away or not accept money. I can't think of many of any sponsors that would sign on and say, unless it is this specific driver, we absolutely want nothing to do with you. Of course, there's some exceptions, right? Jimmy Johnson brought Carvana to Chip Ganassi's team. Of course, they're not going to want that money to go somewhere else. There's some, again, little situational things we can talk about. But for the most part, if 5 to $6 million worth of sponsorship has been secured for an entry and the driver who was intended to drive says, I'm not doing any of the races bar one. I'm not sure we would expect those sponsors to pin themselves to one driver, a make or break scenario. Also knowing just historically, we've seen Marco's car loaded with different sponsors throughout the year. Some of them have stayed. Some of them have gone it's a pretty heavy rotation of names. I think most of you would agree, which would suggest few of them are just, if it ain't Marco, it would, we're, all, we're gone, we're done, we're out. So this is the thing I'm just trying to reinforce. If there was truly 5 to $6 million sitting there, I think we would have had a driver announced 
to do the other races to make sure that those sponsorship obligations were lived up to. That hasn't happened so far. So let me complete this thread, then I'll answer a couple of the other questions here. Some of them being trip hazard, actually. Uh, what's the what's the scuttlebutt on who might drive the 98 outside of Marco? A couple other folks asking in some way, shape, or form, what's going on with the 98 now that its dance card is empty for 16 of the 17 races? Uh, team is not wanting to speak on the record. I won't lie to you and say I haven't spoken to anybody, but I'm just saying nobody wants to talk on the record right now. Fully respect that. This decision to say, okay, I'm just going to do indie, I know was a bit of a surprise for at least a few of the folks that I've spoken with. Not saying it was totally out of left field. They could never imagine that day happening. Just, I don't think many, other than maybe Marco or his dad, really knew that that day was here. And so all the finding money and, hey, we're going to have to keep pushing hard for the next couple of months to get there. Do I think there might be some truthiness to that? Again, uh, if the money was there, you would think that uh, they would have had other drivers lined up to fill the races Marco won't be in when the announcement was made. I am somewhat aware that there is no immediate follow-up press release of, okay, we were going to put that one out, let it kind of soak for a few days, and then we have the next release. Hey, this person and or that person, they're going to drive the rest of the races. To my knowledge, they are not there. They do not have anyone lined up to be in the car outside of Marco at Indy. So makes me think that funding is still a thing. Finding a driver who can bring some budget is certainly a thing. And the search to see if not only they can find someone, but if that's something they really want to do is now kind of sort of on the on the table for discussing. If it's additive, meaning a fast driver is going to complement the team, give them another potential podium finisher, and it contributes to the bottom line, I think that will be considered heavily. Outside of that, outside of, all right, well, we found someone or a couple people, and yeah, they aren't going to help us get anywhere close to a podium, Eh, but they got money. I think in those that type of scenario, I think the team might decide to downsize. And you say, but wait a minute, they certainly need budget. Correct. But in the absence of a budget, what do you do? You try and reduce overall costs by turning off a car. And that could have some obviously dire effects if we're talking income and paychecks and all those kinds of things for folks who were ready to do that vehicle, but just sharing. Uh, These are some of the general things to consider. So if I had to guess, what do I think is going to happen? I think we are going to have Ryan Hunter Ray, Alexander Rossi, and Colton Herta for sure, full-time, full season. 
we are expecting James Hinchcliffe to be confirmed sometime before the end of the decade. I'm hoping, you know, uh, (laughs) we expect Hinch to be that fourth full-timer. And I think the 98 car will just remain something that is certainly utilized for the Indy 500, as we know, with Marco, maybe a couple of other races. And I think that might be about all to really expect this year, unless, again, someone spectacular with funding shows up saying, hey, I got to be in that car, uh, 16 out of 17 races. Um, Final little thing to put a pin in this for right now, this general theme, we know that coming into this season in Indy Lights, Andretti Autosport has the kid, Kyle Kirkwood, who I think if you are betting, and you can find someone who takes Indy Lights bets, if you aren't putting all your money, on Kyle to win the title, you'd be silly. We also know that we expect Devlin DeFrancesco, who just had a birthday, happy birthday, young man, to be a very solid contender in his rookie season with Andretti in Indy Lights. And we know for sure that he is planning to be an IndyCar, if not in 2022, in 2023. That kid's going there. Budget is not a concern Talent is certainly there, and they're grooming and developing it. Might look to the overall answer here of four full-time cars. Colton, Ryan, Alexander, Hinch, four full-time, plus Marco at the Speedway. And then, who knows, towards the end of the year. Or maybe, again, if they find some funded fast driver, that's a possibility. But could this be a year where really it's four full-timers instead of five? I I think there's pretty decent odds to consider there. I'm also willing to bet some good money that says if Devlin has a very good season, I don't know if he has to be a champion, but if he has a very good season, he's going to be looking towards IndyCar, maybe doing one or two off or something towards the end of the year just to get himself acclimated a bit before graduating. Kyle Kirkwood, would expect him to have that million-dollar graduation prize too, whether that's with Andretti or I don't know. Uh, Think of this as a 2021 question mark in terms of five full-time cars that I don't foresee us discussing at all by the time we get to the next season. I think, if anything, they might be trying to figure out how to run six. Uh, let's see, where else can we go? Uh, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce this. C-G-Y-D-A-N. You ask how close Hinch is to landing the final Andretti seat. I mean, everything I know is it's more or less done. So, yeah. Uh, let's see. Then Pamela Henderson asks about which number we might see Hinch in. Uh, I don't know the number. Um, I don't know what number it would be. But yeah, I do know that the 98 is reserved for Marco, and that entry is the 98. Whatever number Hinch might be in, yeah, I don't expect it to be the 98 from what I am hearing. Uh, Let's see, what else? Uh, Northern Penguin, you're asking about Brian Herta and what might happen there. In my conversation with Brian last Friday, I think I mentioned uh, on the last episode, he was sitting on the beach said, hey, I'm here 
to do whatever is needed. He says, I am a partner with the team, and whatever Michael Andretti wants me to do, needs me to do, I will do it. So, yeah, uh, just look at Brian as, as really a good soldier, good friend, who is sad to lose Marco, but also happy to see Marco, it seems like, choose simplicity and happiness. And with as busy as Brian happens to be with his championship-winning, decimating IMSA Michelin Pilot Challenge TCR program that he runs in partnership with Hyundai, uh, yeah, of course, I love me some Brian Herta among my favorite people in the IndyCar paddock. If he is not there for most of the season because he's not running the 98 entry, he's still going to be stupid busy. But again, I don't foresee that lasting too long time-wise. I mean, this coming season, question mark. But by next year, yeah. Uh, I don't foresee Brian being uh, skipping too many races or having a need or reason to. Uh, let's see. Daniel Summersgill, you close this thread asking about who is in charge. Uh, says, who has a final say in whether the Andretti Herta, Andretti Curb Agajanian entry continues with another driver on a full time or part time basis? Um, he said, quotes from Brian Herta seem to indicate he would like it to continue in some capacity. Indeed, he would. We know for sure that Curb and Agajanian contribute funding. We know that Marco is a stakeholder in the car, as is Brian. The team, Michael Andretti's team, is really the one that is has been responsible for finding the bulk of funding for it. So do I think Michael would make a unilateral decision on who might drive the car? No. But... As always, the person who is making the thing possible through finances tends to be the one that probably has a, a bigger and more powerful say if we get to disagreements over which driver would be best to place in the hot rod. Uh, Lance Snyder, of course, you send us off here. First off, hope your wife is doing fantastic. You are doing brilliant, and the cats are being bratty. A lot of folks wishing the cats good stuff, silly stuff. I don't know stuff this week. So thanks. That being said, is the biggest loss of Marco not being full-time. The fact that Marco Polo games in the paddock will be significantly less interesting. Well, it's a bit of a no shit Snyder answer on that one. I've only ever known the game of Marco Polo to be played in the pool. So, if you are aware of pools in paddocks, then yes, they would probably be less interesting. But I am not, so I don't. Um, there you go. Uh, where else do we go here? Where else do we go? Nick Reed says, hey, Marshall, as someone from down under, Seems that a lot of V8 supercar fans, just as NASCAR fans, have their expectations quite high. It says here, expectations are that young Scott McLaughlin will be at the front of the field right away. It says this is maybe a bit hopeful for his first season. How long do you think it will be until Kiwi Scott 
Dixon 2.0, just kidding. Kiwi Scott 2.0 will be a regular on the podium. Best wishes to you and Mrs. Pruitt. Hope all is well. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, I think he is going to have the same exact kind of season that some other drivers will have. And I'll get to those questions in a moment. I think, are they in this episode or part two? I'm not sure. Uh, I think he's going to have a drastically up and down year. I think his results are going to be all over the place. And I don't see how they could be anything other than that guy learning all the tracks, barring one or two, you know, for the first time. Uh, he has no real idea of the true competition personalities of many of the drivers in the series. He's having to continue building a rapport with a race engineer that he really doesn't know. And again, I know that he did the season finale, but that's not something that unlocks a whole new world. He is going to learn. This is the big part, which we know is always uh, rarely a happy thing, Nick. And that is Firestone's alternate red tires, which are used for the first time seriously each weekend in qualifying on road and street courses, you often find rookie drivers. They tend to underuse the reds. They, they tend to not get the best out of them and, or miss their peak. It's just commonplace. And so what does that mean? Well, IndyCar is so competitive that missing out what would have been what, maybe a sixth, seventh place car and you're starting 12th or 13th, we're pretty accustomed to the great drivers being able to charge forward and overcome bad days and qualifying on occasion. Not all the time, though. For the rookies who are still having to learn a ton and figure out how to race one another, what the limits are or aren't in terms of conduct, and this is where you get a few too many weekends, Nick, where you go, Oh, all right. Well, he was there and he learned a lot. Didn't do much in terms of the actual finishing position, but okay. This is a good one to go into the bank. Something that in his second full season, you can take out of the bank and capitalize on. So we know that he's ridiculously talented. I absolutely expect Scott if not in his first year, uh, by the second year to become a race winner. Um, I, you know, I look at his trajectory, probably somewhat similar to Alexander Rossi's. Obviously Alex did that crazy thing, winning the Indy 500 as a rookie, but you know, he was not the most consistent thing in the world as a rookie because you wouldn't expect it. So he wasn't and came back the next year and was, a serious contender. And the next year after that, holy crap, uh, even more. So, yeah, just saying. Um, this is a guy who I hope his fans, um, and I am one of them, and I'm sure that there are many, many others who are fans of Mr. McLaughlin. Gonna throw him into the same category as a Jimmy Johnson, as a Romain Grosjean, as whatever rookies who aren't really accustomed to this sport, this series, this something, who aren't coming in as those who know the tracks, know the everything. You're going to have a boom and bust season. It's kind of the rule. 
you love it when those rule when that rule gets broken. That tends to indicate you have someone who's truly special. I think Scott's going to be on the advanced edge of it not being super boom and bust, but it would just be crazy to expect him to not make a lot of mistakes, tear up some cars, have a bit of a frustrating and expensive learning curve at times, but to also have plenty of events where we go, yep, that is why Roger Penske hired this man. So like Jimmy Johnson, as I have said, and will probably keep saying over and over and over again, can't wait to see what he does as a rookie, really looking forward to hitting the fast forward button, getting to season two where Scotty, Jimmy, and whomever else can use everything they learned to be far more effective and give us a truer representation of their talent. So expect a lot, Nick, but don't be too upset when Scotty is, uh, you know, not completing all the laps in the race. Sean Price says, as a follow-up to a recent question about Zach Veach's small stature being a hindrance, it wasn't. I was wondering why IndyCar doesn't use power steering. Well, it's just not part of how the IndyCar series has been run. It hasn't been part of the tradition. And yeah, so the reason why is because it's not part of IndyCar's history and it prides itself as being a series that is very tough to tame, that demands uh, exceptional physical prowess to do the job. And is that a bit of a filter that might keep some drivers out? Yeah, I'm sure that it might, but I love the fact that it doesn't rely on power steering. I know it's easy for me to say because I'm not an IndyCar driver, but I ask the same thing of the series best, and the ones that I respect the most say, yeah, I don't want it. I want to beat the guy next to me or hopefully way the hell behind me because I spent more time training being able to get myself into a physical place where I can dominate the car for an entire race, and maybe they can for 90% or 95%. But at some point, uh, I hope I'm going to train so that my muscles and endurance can be an advantage. So that's the thing that I love. It is the fact that in a series that is mostly spec, there's definitely an area where drivers can take their future success into their own hands, at least from the physical side, and say, okay, I think I can come up with an advantage to beat the next person. That's pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool, where we don't really have that conversation in so many other series where power steering is the norm. Drew Wetzel Really appreciate the active role you have played in submitting questions to the show. Once you joined Twitter a couple weeks ago, says, uh, last week's question about new team owners got me thinking. Drew had asked, what do we need to do to get more owners coming in? Says, if you, MP, are put in charge of IndyCar and tasked with growing our sport, would you focus on more tech and higher speeds plus costs at the expense of car count or less tech and lower speeds plus costs to increase participation? 
Uh, let's see. And you kind of close the scenario here. Do you think a grid of 20 badass thousand horsepower rocket ships or a grid of 40 cheaper any lights like cars would lead to more interest or growth of the sport? This is hashtag me personally, the official hashtag of my show. Would prefer the former, but I don't know if prospective fans care if the cars go 240 versus 200 or have 900 horsepower versus 450. Little bit of let's talk about where we're at right now in the answer to this, Drew. And it's that we've got 750 ish horsepower right now with push to pass. We have qualifying speeds at Indy that are really, really serious. We have some of the best racing I've ever seen across many decades and Mecky, sure. Many series names, keeping it in. This is my unpolished turd of a show. No edits for my mistakes. Not that many people watch, brother. So when we were in the previous chassis formula, where horsepower wasn't crazy, it was a spec engine, costs were low, we had a lot of cars, right? We had a lot of cars showing up towards the end of that formula. And it really didn't do much for TV ratings and attendance was by no means insane. We went to higher tech stuff with twin turbo motors and this and that and the other. And they go faster and they're more capable and they're all kinds of things. And we haven't really put a lot more eyeballs on the TV show or a lot more people in the grandstands. I would say that this is the thing that always gets shouted down because it's easy because it's scary. And that is reducing costs in order to get more cars. It's not the ticket. It hasn't been. There are a ton of sports for people to watch back when IndyCar racing was one of seemingly very few a long, long time ago. Well, it was fantastically popular. There weren't many versions of it. There were in terms of racing series in the U.S. NASCAR, sports cars with IMSA and some other stuff too. But for a long time, IndyCar was the big racing series, the biggest. And it did very well. The cars were super fast, cutting edge, big personalities in many of them, TV advertising all over the place, magazine, radio, it was giant in every capacity. Only had more forms of sport come out. We've not had the same high, high engagement from uh, big companies wanting to advertise to blanket TV, radio, you name it, interwebs with ads supporting that form of racing. So what we've had is a kind of a pick them, choose them, see what thing you like type deal with racing and then just sports in general. And so just say, since we're past the golden era where everything was rich and fat and amazing and just the best ever, I'm so thankful for having been there. It's not when I got fat, by the way, but um, it was amazing. But I would just say, Drew, to try and close on this topic, locking things down, making things more similar 
those things were not part of the golden era of the sport. Of course you could say, yeah, but you had giant tobacco advertising and all kinds of things. All true. All, all true. But big advertising doesn't mean it's going to engage somebody or going to pique their curiosity. We had this perfect formula of big money, big diversity, big interest, and it all worked so incredibly well. Well, in the absence of big money, I fully understand why IndyCar has, by and large, gone spec, toned everything down, everything's matchy-matchy, the same, you name it, more or less. But there's also been this pretty consistent, why can't we jumpstart this and get folks interested, and why don't they care? You go, well, the only thing I can think of is to try the one item that we've intentionally ran away from, for fear of costs and cost overruns and spinning ourselves into oblivion. So as long as we're spec and as long as we're not inviting true innovative technology in, cutting-edge type stuff, mention this, I don't know how many times. I've lost track. But as long as the, the proverbial Silicon Valley world is not welcome... I'm not surprised that IndyCar struggles to go beyond this kind of flat level. You know, it's slight upticks every year, a little bit more attendance, a little bit more TV, but there it's this slowest gradient of a hill climb you could imagine. Um, most people in their normal lives are deeply immersed in technology, whether it's through personal items your phone, your tablet, your watch, your whatever, everything that you do, if you want to stream, you want to consume, just seemingly everywhere we turn in life outside of IndyCar events is loaded with technology. And the folks who enjoy such things tend to consume at a high rate. Might be something here to consider that in a sport that is drummed out pretty much all that, where Silicon Valley, name Silicon wherever, whether it's here in California, whether it's in Texas, in the East Coast, in other areas of the world, if you say, hey, you cannot come here, uh, it sure makes me feel like we're asking folks who live well immersed in such things that piques their interest, they want to find out more about, want to share with others, want to build a community in and around this thing that connects people, shared interests and whatnot. It's a little strange when you have a sport that is centered on technology. Football isn't. (laughs) Basketball isn't. Ours happens to be. And yet we say, nope, closing the door. All the things that might interest you at home that we might think of putting in the car or connecting in some way, nope. And so if you want to know how I would be tasked, what I would do if tasked with growing with a sport, it would come with a pretty comprehensive rules rethink and trying to find all the ways that we can bring cutting-edge, real-world technology into IndyCar, what business, partnerships, development deals, you name it, what relationships can we forge and open series-wide, team-wide, you name it. How do we start getting advanced again how do we become futuristic instead of kind of stuck in the past so 
that's where I would focus those energies because while I'm no longer young, 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 I do know that a lot of what I read, uh, a lot of what I hear, and a lot of what I'm told is, hey, that's kind of my grandpa's series. So maybe we should stop being that. Doogie Davies says, Marshall, I've heard it mentioned by you several times. We need to get a younger audience to secure the future of the sport. Last Sunday, I was scrolling through through TV and saw that they were showing an NFL game on Nickelodeon. They broke everything down and uh, overlaid slime and other graphics on replays. This seems like a fantastic idea for India's kids already love cartoons with cars in them. Why do we need to talk? Uh, who do we need to talk to at IndyCar to get this to be a reality? Do you think it would actually be a viable option to attract younger audiences? Well, I'm going to have to go with you on this one, Doogie. It certainly doesn't sound like a bad idea. I don't have kids, so I can't really tell you the thing that attracts kids to cartoons and slime and Nickelodeon. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't so long ago where IndyCar, probably like most other sports, was really treated as a lifestyle thing, a family thing, something we can all enjoy and we can all be a part of. I would really like to have my son or daughter involved and and have this be a passion of theirs. If you do things that those young people like, if you're involved there, I mean, I don't know if this is so much a racing thing, but just kind of a general life thing. Like, hey, yeah, uh, let's make sure that we appeal to everyone. So it sounds like a very smart person at the NFL, probably with kids, said, hey, maybe we could do that with our thing here. And they did. So uh, yes is the answer. Uh, let's see. Ed Haynes says, new team. From scratch, any series you pick, says Penske versus Ron Dennis, who wins a championship first? Well, if we're talking today, Ron Dennis is kind of sort of retired. So, yeah. Uh, But if he wasn't, I would say Roger Penske. Yeah. Um, Ron Dennis, as I have been told, as I have read and heard the anecdotes, excellent at what he did also someone who relied on a lot of people to achieve his success that i think you could remove ron dennis in certain periods at mclaren and they would still be championship winning organization I cannot think of any scenario where you remove Roger Penske and Team Penske is a championship winning organization. Like it, it is it's truly remarkable, Ed. And this is this warrants a case study, psychological case study or something. The amount of inspiration and direction Roger provides to all of his subordinates, which is another way of saying everybody at the company except for himself, is alarming. And I say it's alarming from a standpoint of I will speak to those who have worked for Roger for 20 years, 30 years, yada, yada, yada. 
What do you normally get in a scenario like that, Ed, for someone who works for the big, big boss and they are in a big position in the company and have been there for a very long time? You usually get a bit of a separate individual personality, a little bit of autonomy, right? Hey, the team owner is amazing. We know all the things that they do. They, they're the blueprint for who we are. None of that changes, but some of the key players have been there for a long time. They stand out a lot for their personality, their approach. And yeah, I, I bring, maybe bring a little bit, something different than the boss. You, that's not abnormal. It's actually the norm. Penske. That's the thing that is alarming. Ed, you talk to a Tim Sindrick or a Bud Denker or a, or, 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 and they speak like Roger is standing right behind them. Uh, whispering the words into their ears of what to say, what to think, how to do it. So I'm not saying they're robots. That's not what I'm getting at here. But what I'm saying is the thing that fascinates me, the thing that needs exploring is how a team with so many veterans who've been there for so long, they've never broken out, broken away, and really become their own individual voice, an independent voice that sometimes conflicts with the big boss. These are all folks who are perfectly aligned never out of line never stray and it's not i don't think out of fear it's because this guy is the fountain of information behavior critical thinking just everything and they have fallen in line and learned of course they all bring some of their own things that add to the team but how crazy is it ed to see decades and decades later Everybody is marching in a perfect line behind Roger Penske. So, Ron Dennis, yeah, not a person who, let's just say if they held a Ron Dennis Appreciation Day, I don't know how many of his former mechanics, drivers, managers, and whatnot I'm, I'm talking an optional appreciation day at a little picnic or something at the park, not at the McLaren factory, but yeah, just drive on out Ron Dennis appreciation day. I don't know how many people would actually turn up. There'd be some, of course, but he, as I have only known is not a person who was well loved or liked at the time. And certainly I don't hear many flowery words spoken about him, uh, since he left McLaren. RP, I think you would have to book about five different parks because while he's never been known as a big, emotional, flowery, blubbery guy, uh, the people who thank Roger for helping them in their lives and their career, even to the folks doing the smallest thing in the team, the least recognized jobs, even they tell you how big of an impact he has made on their lives. So, yeah, uh you have that group mobilized behind Roger, he'd kick the living poop out of Ron Dennis. The end. Uh, Jordan Darwin says, MP, the last 2,500s have seen long-suffering competitors rewarded with their first 500 win. 
when John Menard finally won in 2019 as a car sponsor and Mike Lanigan winning in 2020 as a car owner with Takuma Sato, if the trend were to continue in 2021, who are some good candidates to finally get an Indy 500 win? Hashtag me personally, I think Coyne might be the best candidate, following followed by Ed Carpenter, who is running out of time as a driver to win. What about Marco? Says, uh, he's been out of the news lately. Kidding. Boy. So, yes. The dream thing would be, obviously, for Marco to win, even if he hadn't retired, barring the one race per year. Uh, I'm feeling Ed. I'm feeling Ed Carpenter for sure. Um, You say long-suffering. I know Graham Rahal's been doing this for a long time, but he's still a young man. But his dad won the frickin' Indy 500. Uh, his dad's a three-time IndyCar champion. Those are things that he never forgets as things to live up to. So Ed, we know for sure, will not go into future retirement with peace without an Indy 500 win as a driver or team owner. Graham... Man, I'm just telling you, uh, that's a guy who could win the Indy 500. Uh, I know that he there would be a element of satisfaction in his life uh, as he's never ever seen as a professional having their daughter. That that's covered things off on the personal side. Coin for sure, um, and I'd say they've been in a position to be close more than once. He has been close more than once. Who else? I mean, if you, you, you mentioned long suffering, I would throw knowing that it's not true. Like, Oh boy, it's been forever. This person's never gotten anything, but I know Joseph Newgarden feels like it's been nothing but misery or close throughout his career. Um, he's someone who I think would just melt into a puddle if he were to win the Indianapolis 500. Let me see if anybody else jumps out on the team side or driver side. I mean, Foyt won a long time ago with Kenny Breck, but we'd ha- we'll have to see if they're close to do that, being able to do that again. Um, yeah, I mean, Carlin hasn't been doing it that long. Uh weird i mean ganassi obviously won a lot when dario joined at the 500 i know there's a feeling of like wow uh surprised we don't have more of these uh dixon he can retire happily but i just i'll never feel right if he is a one-time winner of the indy 500 that that i know for sure um yeah i'd probably stick with graham as a driver uh, Ed as a driver or team owner, for sure. I think coin, it'd be a feel-good thing, but yeah. Um, I'll tell you, you know, they, yeah, they had something. They've had something there. They've been surprisingly good at the speedway. Dixie I'll throw in for sure. We're coming up, what, this year will be Sam Schmidt's 20th anniversary his first Indy 500 entry as a team owner. Um, never won, obviously, as a team owner or driver, so maybe there's something there a little bit. Uh, and the mention about Marco, for sure. So 
those are the ones that jump out. I should probably also drink some water here. Uh, let's see. Where do we go next after Jordan? And, you know, I mentioned it might take two hours. I think I'm going to be way wrong. I shouldn't claim that too heavily. All the questions above the line, I think it's going to take us to an hour. We might be able to go. Yeah, we'll see if we can squeeze in some more. Uh, John Wojnar, our pal. The uh, You still have an answer, John, what you are uh, rank-wise in the Prude listener army. Um, subordinate? I don't know what. Tell me. Tell me, John. Says MP recently, Taylor Gray drew the ire of the NASCAR community for using his iPhone to record video while at speed during a test at Daytona. And John sent me this video so I know what he was talking about. And the guy truly did. He had his left hand, I think it was his left hand on the steering wheel, charging down the back straight into turn three while holding his iPhone in his right hand and like turning it back so you could see him and then flipping it back around so you could look back through the front of the car as he turned into turn three. Um, And I don't know if that's the only clip, but it just, yeah. So he says, back in your days, uh, working in the garage, what was the dumbest reason you ever saw or heard a driver got distracted and possibly crashed? Were they hungry, upset over a fight with their significant other, staring at a cloud that looked like Ulysses S. Grant? Uh, Always praying for you and your family. Uh, Says, P.S., love your hat. Thank you. I don't know what hat you're referring to, but that's kind of you to say. Uh, Quick note, if we were to write Ulysses Grant, would we not know who that is? It always strikes me as odd when you get the middle initial, but the middle initial isn't the differentiator. Like, oh, well, without that S, wouldn't know who you're talking about. So anyways, that always sticks out to me as weird. Kind of like referring to Michael Jackson as Mike Jackson. Like if you just said, hey, did you uh, you see that thing with Mike Jackson? No one would know what you're, talk- know what you're talking about. Michael Jackson? We understand. Maybe that's what I'm getting at here with Ulysses S. Grant. Okay. Uh, so I did see that, thanks to you. And I'm trying to remember the dumbest questions, the dumbest crash reasons distraction has usually been the thing the i was reaching down trying to find something my seat belts were loose my one of my harnesses came unbuckled it usually has to do with i've been taken away from the ability to stare straight ahead or whatever and focus on the road ahead because i've got this thing um that is taking my attention away and there's a weird thing that happens here john and it is i just speak as a person who's done this um when you are racing when you are lapping quickly whatever it is when you're on the track going quickly in the vehicle of your choice your brain speeds up and adjusts to that different clock that is happening. Time doesn't stand still. Time is still the same. But when you're going stupid fast, your eyes, your brain, your processing, it adjusts to that. And if it doesn't, then you stop driving. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why people who try it stop because they're just struggle to process quickly enough. 
but there is a point usually pretty quickly with the best drivers where you're standing talking to the person on pit lane how you doing yada yada whatever you get in the car strap in and take off all of a sudden everything is coming at your eyes in a super fast rate of speed and it's not just the road ahead it's all the landmarks and the grass and the trees and whatever around you and your body adjusts to that so i mention all this because although while looking at the thing in front of you that's coming at you quickly while you're focusing forward your brain tends to do a good job got it okay everything's happening at five times speed or ten times speed but okay i got it i got it i i can i'm gonna speed up the reaction of your arms and your feet and like okay cool we're all in sync there's this weird thing though when you look down or you turn and spend too much time looking in your mirror or whatever where that mental clock rate doesn't keep up. And I know this because the, man, my seat moved a little bit. My belt, one of my belts popped out of the, uh, popped out of the lock and the, this or the, that something else fell off and was rolling around in the car. And I tried to reach down and get it and had to take my eyes off the road there's a weird thing that usually happens here, which leads to crashes, which is if your brain's accustomed to things going at 10 times speed while looking up, the minute you look away from that, for whatever reason, uh, I've seen and heard of many occasions where the brain just goes, oh, cool, <laughs> everything's normal again and fine uh, and does not keep up. And then you get a crash. Then you get a whoop. Went, uh, went a little too far here, didn't turn in soon enough. I did not keep my brain clocked at the same speed or the rate of speed of the car the moment that my eyes were averted from the road. I know I've done that. The reason that I have a fracture in my right wrist that still causes pain was from being distracted and not keeping track of the rate of speed I was going, and all of a sudden, zoom, I went off and crashed hard and did not good things so that's often kind of sort of that uh one of the sub components of this is that i forgot to shift right (laughs) um more modern era not so much of an issue uh electronics not going to let you rev the motor to the point that it explodes it'll just sit there on the rev limiter but pre full electronic intervention certainly there are times where driver forgot to upshift possibly downshifted just over rev the motor bent some valves did some bad things um tends to be in that area where you are in this accelerated environment and you get taken out briefly and there's a pretty not good disconnect with time space and continuums uh it wasn't a crash but my dad did tell me that when he was racing at one point in the 60s, he had the shift knob come off of this fairly quick little sports racer he was driving. And coming by start-finish, tried to throw it to a friend um, who was on pit lane. And he said, yes, I almost killed my friend. And he was not very happy when I saw him when I got back to pit lane. 
And I did not realize it till I got back to pit lane because, uh, I had this shift knob rolling around, getting in the way, getting beneath my feet. And I finally got it, got a hold of it. And I didn't want to lose it because it's expensive. So I tried to toss it to my friend as I went by, uh, the pit wall and, uh, I didn't really see anything after that, but assumed that he caught it. And then after he told me, you almost took my head off because you f- somehow failed to realize that if you're in a vehicle going, whatever, a hundred miles an hour and actually use your arm like a pitcher to throw it hard and potentially accelerate it while going a hundred miles an hour. Well, you've just kind of fired a, a plum sized bullet at my head. And, uh, I can just tell you that they apparently laughed about it years later, but not so much at the time. So wasn't a crash, but, uh, yeah, boy, could have had some repercussions. Uh, let's see. Well, that's the final one that Tim has put above the line. So I tell you, he's so, so aggressive. He just doesn't care about the rest of you, but I, I do. So we're going to do this. I'm going to take a little sip of coffee. I feel like I should put in the music bed here, by the way, because I'm just taking a little mid-episode break. Ah, boy, that's good. Um, I'm going to have some water, too. I'm going to chase that with some water. Oh, boy. Hey, do y'all like the uh, the third of the new Weekend Indy Car logos? that I used with the uh, call for questions, the, uh, the good old 81 Eagle, that Pepsi Challenger, beautiful product from all American racers. I hope you did. Uh, that's my favorite so far. The three new ones, not that they aren't all awesome as created by our man, Roger Warwick. Um, I just really loved it. So I shared it. I just sent it down to our friends at All American Racers, to uh, Justin Gurney and Kathy Wida, and also uh, our queen of All American Racers, Evie Gurney, Dan's wife. And uh, she uh, <laughs> she really loved the, uh, the new logo, too. So, uh, yeah, that made me super happy. So going to get uh, some of those made. I just sent off uh, that logo to have some stickers made and I'm hoping here sometime soon because I've got a whole pile of stickers. Both some of the new ones, uh, some old ones, some magnets, uh, some holographic ones, um, buttons. I've got all kinds of... I was going to say crap but I'm trying to sell this stuff. Uh, fine, fine American-made products. Um, I'm hoping to get some sales links up on the good old MarshallPruittPodcast.com site where if you want one of these stickers or some of the other things, you can just buy them. And uh, I'll throw them into an envelope, and then they will appear in your mailbox. And hopefully they will bring you joy. Or you can stick them on people and things that you don't like and uh, use them as markers that way. But uh, hopefully I'll get that going here before too long because I've been meaning to for a really long time and just haven't gotten 
it done. All right, let's get back here to the fun, the F-U-N, and where are we going next as we continue the show? Well, I would say Ryan Terpstra, a person who I lovingly refer to as my show's spirit vegetable, not quite a spirit animal. Uh, He has done this thing as part of the Prue Day. Once again, that is kind of a sub-listener group, a little collective uh, half-named after me, Prue, half-named after my favorite WWE tag team, The New Day. Uh, he says, hey, can I get a IRL shout-out? He says, the I Prue Day Racing League has been set up on iRacing. And uh, I won't read you the URL because it's too many letters and stuff. And yeah, um, but Ryan, we'll figure out a way how to get that out to folks. He says, we're having a friendly welcome session this week, Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern. The league is a fix-it-up USF 2000 league. All right, we're repeating league there, but that's great. That will focus primarily on the base iRacing content. Paid tracks will include Long Beach, Mid-Ohio, and one track to be determined by members. The goal is to have competitive fun without the stress of a massive time investment or expert levels of competition. Ryan goes on to say, I would love to see the series grow to 20 plus members there's no cost to the league and anyone who is an iRacing member can click on the link above and request to join he says some guy named Pruitt even joined I did I might have been the first uh, but I still have never set up the steering wheel and pedals um, that I've had for quite some time that are sitting in the closet but hey uh, there you go so yeah I'll uh, share this link I think maybe don't blame me if it sucks it's all terpstra's fault uh, if it's terrible uh but maybe if you aren't a member of the prude day you can do some iRacing racing with members of the prude day and become a member of the prude day or just own them and embarrass them which they deserve i got to admit uh thanks ryan for sending that in uh let's see kevin frederico uh you mentioned that you think jared deanda the voice of formula drift grid life and a variety of other things uh will become the new assistant Long Beach Grand Prix announcer working alongside Terry Clanton. Uh, he also mentioned it's going to be weird not hearing Bruce's banter at the GP. Ain't that the truth? Uh, let's see. Indie Fan 21 from the good old Reddits. As a journalist, whenever you hear rumor, like maybe Driver X is going to move to Team Y for the following season, how do you know when it is safe to put that rumor in print, even though that team or driver have not announced anything yet i ask because it seems like you always know what's going to happen in that regard before official announcements are made that's a great question i should also mention that uh i thought i thought i was going to mention this at the beginning of the show um i don't i'll tell you this is sad i've only been doing this episode for an hour so far and i don't remember what i said at the beginning um there's going to be an announcement tomorrow morning uh race for equality and change announcement uh you might have seen some of that i'm not talking about it i've known about it for 31 or 32 days the reason i know that number is because i looked back and saw that i had a quote in place to use that would go with the announcement tomorrow exactly 30 days ago uh, had that sent and sitting in my inbox on the 18th of December. 
but was asked to not pursue this as a story. And that is exactly what I did. Uh, because based on who placed that request, not so much a request, more of a uh, directive. So uh, just going to mention here, because it's kind of aligned with what you're asking here, IndieFan21, um, cannot wait for this news to become public. And actually, once we're done here with this episode, I need to finish up uh, my advanced story to file uh, for tomorrow morning. Um, here's the, the quick and short and dirty and nasty and whatever of how to answer this question. Uh, rumor is information. It's either good information or bad information. So whether it's a rumor, a tip, a whatever, it's either true or false. It's really simple. And so I, Let's see. Try not to give away too much of how the sausage is made. More often than I would like, I will learn something, do whatever the necessary research, calling, checking, verifying necessary. And when I come to a point to where I verify that it is accurate and real, it is commonplace to reach out to that person or that team or the whatever and say, Hey, uh, I've heard that driver X is going to move to team Y in your example. Um, can you talk about it? Not, you know, uh, if you can't, I understand, but I'd love if you could confirm it or give me a quote, but if you can't, again, they're, they're not, not doing, how's this? I know of at least one reporter who likes to do things in a very forceful kind of, I'm acting like I'm controlling you. Uh, can you please confirm that so-and-so is doing this thing? I know that they are, and I'm going to go to print with it, um, even if you don't tell me. So there's no reason to not tell me. And it's this kind of like, Really? Like you're doing that in freaking in, in motor racing? Okay. Um, you just try and be straight with the person and say, hey, I know this thing. And can you talk about it? I can't give you a percentage. I don't know if it's 50-50 or if it's more or less. But sometimes you'll get a yes. I can talk about it and we'll do so on the record. That doesn't happen often. More often you'll get a, okay, well, if you're coming to me with this, then you, you know, this doesn't sound like a fishing expedition. It sounds like you're calling and you know what's going on. Um, I can talk to you about it. Can't talk to you on the record. So uh, you could say, you know, you spoke with somebody, don't put a name on it, and it's believed this is going to happen. Or however you want to do it, but we never spoke. But I don't want to ignore this or what. It, just do it. Just leave my name out of it, and then you get the other, which is won't take the call or won't tell you anything. And you kind of sort of know those folks. They they stand out 
after a couple of attempts and you go, okay, well, even in those instances, you try and do your best to reach out and you want to at least be able to say, Hey, uh, I did contact so-and-so no answer, no response, no anything. Even if you knew beforehand, they were never going to answer the phone. Um, there are some teams I can tell you without a doubt, like (laughs) they're not going to say a thing, you know, it that's their policy period, but you still try, even so you don't give up. So that I would say is, is a pretty big part here to consider. Um, there's been this little bit of a weird thing. I'll just throw it into close here. Um, I work, I have two clients, primary clients. I work for them. They pay me and others to be reporters, to be news people, to be writers. But underlying point is we don't pay you to just sit and wait for teams to make official announcements. That's not, we don't need you for that. We could get almost anybody to do that. It's like when you read whatever it is in your normal life, tomorrow the Pentagon is expected to do this thing. Could just sit and wait for that press conference to be held. But if you are a reporter and you are hearing things, working your sources, trying to be in the know and ahead of the curve, which in theory is what you're being paid to do, well, you're not supposed to sit and wait until the press release comes out. You're supposed to go and approach your sources and then approach whomever or whatever is the topic and say, hi, I understand tomorrow you're going to do this thing. Can you please talk to me about it? And you then take their response and shape what you do with the news from there. There are times, without a doubt, where I know something is real, but I haven't had enough people confirm, and so I sit and wait. And sometimes I've been beaten, absolutely, because another reporter will have done a better job of finding someone who would confirm it, even if it's not on the record. A lot of folks are afraid to speak out of turn these days. And so, again, you try and get as many points of confirmation as you can, and then you go. Official announcements are awesome, but they are ultimately not what we are paid to sit around and wait for. You do your best to work with teams and work with drivers. As I said about the race for equality and change news that's coming, not that it means anything, but... By chance, this is something that I got wind of a good long while ago. And for a reason that I probably cannot and will not get into uh, now or in the future, there was an amazing, amazing reason given to not do anything with it. And full acknowledgement beforehand or at that moment of someone else might get it. Someone else might break it. And guess what? They're going to win the news day. No doubt. That's a loss we're willing to take because of some other reasons. So final thing I'll mention here, just because it's sometimes I find it a little bit weird. 
and I get drivers that push back. Hell, my good pal, Mr. Bourdais, pushes back all the time. Oh, you should just wait for the official announcement. Dude, <laughs> sorry. If someone were to tell you, hey, don't pass that guy. No, 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 no. Just, just let him go by. Just let him go by. Yeah, start racing when, when it's convenient. Don't, don't, don't charge from the beginning. Don't try and be first at all times. Uh, don't be a leader in your respective form of employment. Uh, just lay back. He'd punch you in the face. He doesn't. He believes though that fall back. Uh, you got to let official announcements come. That's fine. That, that's how he sees the world. Um, that's not how news works, man. So it's a complex thing. I've said this before. If I was a reporter in a much bigger sport where close relationships with the athletes and the teams and managers and whatever more or less don't exist. You just, you get your sources lined up and you go, there's no consideration really about anything else here because it's such a small place. doesn't mean you stop doing your job. just means that you probably have a lot more things to keep in mind, uh, about how you do what you do and when you do it. Um, so yeah, great question. I'll tell you that. Uh, Chris Ward says, MP hope all is well for you, your wife and the cats. Here we go. The cats again. Um, you say with Marco standing down from a full-time drive, would it make sense for him to be the test driver for the new engine? This being 2023 on the Honda side, similar to what the late Dan Weldon did. Um, then you close by saying very kindly, thanks for all that you do for us. Hope to see you to track soon. I saw this when it came in, Chris, and I want to say yes. I just don't know if Marco is held in the same regard as a Dan Weldon, who, when Dan did that, was a Indy 500 winner, not once, but twice, also a champion, and someone who while he wasn't in a great employment position. Um, yeah, boy, um, this is a guy who whew, renowned. I don't know if Marco is held in that same regard. And so I'm not saying he wouldn't be good or couldn't offer good things. I'm just saying there's a very serious difference in how these two men are regarded from a technical standpoint and feedback standpoint. So I almost wonder if uh, there aren't some other semi-recent IndyCar drivers uh, who might not be asked uh, or who might be asked to do that before Marco. But I do think that, yeah, uh, we would have to look at what rules IndyCar put in place first and foremost. If they say, hey, manufacture test days for this new engine, first of all, you're going to get quite a few more than normal, and also you can nominate whomever you want. I would guarantee you Honda will indeed be looking at their current full-time driver roster in 2022 to assist with this. Uh, so assuming Dixie is still full-time um, going into 2022, uh, you can absolutely 
book right now. Scott Dixon will be doing plenty of new engine development testing. You can also absolutely book on Alexander Rossi being in that conversation. Colton Herta will certainly be part of that conversation. Um, Graham Ray Hall. I'm sure that they will try and spread it around their teams, but yeah, uh, I would be very surprised if they went to someone who wasn't full-time and who is not regarded as the finest uh, person on that technical side to be in that role. Uh, Hrishi Despawn, you say, now that they're both retired from full-time IndyCar, who had a better career, Danica or Marco? Both achieved significant mainstream popularity without much on-track success. Your thoughts? Man, uh... Marco was already pissed off or is already pissed off at Robin's column from today. So I guess we're just really trying to get him to send unpleasant pictures my way today. Uh, okay. Let's see. I feel like Danica is the right answer because she had better average results for more years than Marco while driving fewer years than Marco by a large amount. So, yeah, I would have to say pretty clearly it was Danica. And it's not because I, I don't know, it's not like I like more one more than the other or one less than the other. There's nothing to do with any of that, just... Well, Danica was certainly not championship material. Her time in IndyCar, again, she was competitive more often than Marco for sure. Um, I mean, I don't think there's any real question uh, about that. I know that Marco won twice as many races, that being two to one, but in a usually pretty stacked competitive team at Andretti Autosport. You know, she hovered, uh, what, with Ray Hall as well? I mean, I think every year except for her rookie year, she was inside the top 10 in points. Um, I mean, there was a pretty rich period there with Andretti Green Racing, as it was called, before it was Andretti Autosport, where she was like 5th, 6th, 7th, 6th, 5th, seventh fifth sixth whatever it was um but yeah she's pretty much always a top 10 championship driver and you know that's something that marco barring rare occasion you know really did well it was never in a consistent basis the two of them had i guess co-equal best championship finishes danica finished fifth once Marco finished fifth once, um, both happy and awesome for them. But if we're just talking year in year out competitiveness, uh, I'd say, yeah, things today have certainly been more competitive, but yeah. Um, a few too many years, slightly adrift for reasons we can't fully put our finger on. So I'd have to go with Danica, uh, Joe Izzo. Does Marshall having a moment of quiet looking back? Um, what do you think will be the response to, would have been the response to Romain Groschon's crash? 
Um, I well, you don't actually spell this out, but do you are you referring to if Roma had the F one crash, but in an IndyCar, uh, you're saying seeing how he got out, the aero screen would have blocked him. Any updates as to the next generation of aero screen development? Um, okay, little. I'll just share this in a very general sense. Always love reading everyone's questions. Joe, do not hesitate with the next one to kind of read it through before you send it in because there's a lot of gaps on trying to figure out what exactly you're asking here uh, in some regard. Um, I mean, if he'd had an arrow screen instead of a, how, how would it? I, I don't know, brother. Um, as for the next generation of arrow screen development, we just had one, we've had one year. So I don't really think there's a next generation coming along yet. Uh, did publish a story with Jay Fry, I think in and around Christmas, New Year's, talking about looking back on the first season using the arrow screen. And in that, he talks about a couple of tweaks they plan on making, none of them serious or structural. So you might go back and read that on racer.com. All right, uh, a few more here, and then we're done. I love this. I love this. I love this. Uh, Cody Oakwood, hey, MP, thanks for educating this educator regarding the body kit slash body work vernacular a couple of weeks ago. As a follow-up, could you do a brief history of the body body work uh, that has been developed over the years for the DW12? What significant changes were made with each iteration? Uh, why were changes made and how successful has each change been over the years in improving the quality of racing? Well, thanks, Cody. Uh, you know, I just said we're almost done. Yeah, we're going to add another hour here. Thanks to our pal. Um, kidding aside, Cody, uh, I'll fire through these here. Maybe if there's a time where you see the volume of questions that have come in and say, hey, there's not a lot, I'll fire it through again. Maybe you can go a little bit deeper. Uh, the first what? three years i believe yeah 12 2013 2014 was the stock delara kit uh it made copious amounts of downforce most people that i know of regarded as one of the ugliest indie cars if not the ugliest indie car uh possibly of all time uh for 2015 through 2016 and 17 manufacturer aero kits were allowed Chevy and Honda came up with, barring the floor, the shock cover, um, what, and I think main wing elements and whatnot, uh, they were allowed to more or less do what they wanted. And in that first season in 2015, the giant surprise was that Chevrolet which by comparison to Honda and its partners at Worth Research, Nick Worth, who's highly regarded for his aerodynamic knowledge, products, and reliance and capabilities with software, uh, computational fluid dynamics and simulation and otherwise to come up with aerodynamics. Um, Between the two brands, one had a deep F1-grade uh, partner contributor um, and Chevrolet did not by any means and had to go out and kind of create their own department to come up with an aero kit. 
to the massive shock of everybody, uh, I think, except for Chevy. Chevy just myrtleized Honda with their kit. It made plenty of downforce. It made minimal amounts of drag. And by comparison, very simple. Uh, it wasn't simple, but by comparison to Honda's HPDs and Worth Researches, it was simple. And it beat the living poop out of uh, out of Honda and did that for the whole year. And there was a bit of a bone thrown uh, at the end of 2015, I believe. I'm forgetting the rule number, but it was the, uh, yeah, uh, these weren't very equally matched. And in the name of uh, better competition, we're going to allow the one that didn't do as good of a job to redevelop in a number of areas to try and catch up. And so that's what happened. Things did get better in 2016, but not good enough for them to truly uh, catch all the whip. And Chevy ended up kicking butt again. For 2017, there was a bit of a, all right, let's not go too nuts because we're going to do this universal arrow kit. So let's lock things in for 2017, as I seem to recall. So still making crazy downforce. The highest level of downforce is down forces sure uh the manufacturer arrow kit era only three years but it is the era where the highest numbers were ever seen in terms of downforce because of all the crazy things that were piled onto the cars and all that went away for 2018 got rid of the dumb overhead don't need it air intake for the turbo went back to the old low slung engine cover and really Big efforts were put in by Delara, by IndyCars, Aerodynamic Group, our pal Tino Belli, who listens to the show. There's a lot of good folks who said, hey, how about we rethink this, go away from insane downforce levels, going to cut approximately 1,000 pounds off the peak downforce capabilities while making the cars look just far more appealing to the eye, and hopefully the racing gets better. Well... Part of that was shedding the rear wheel guards that were part of the manufacturer era in the original Delara kit. Those nicknamed the Kardashians, Cody, they looked strange. We'd never really seen them on Indy cars. A lot of folks really took big umbrage with them. Hey, it was a sports cars all of a sudden, closed wheel. What the hell? They never looked great on the cars, but they sure cleaned up the air coming off of the cars and reduced drag, uh, especially at Indy. So made it easier for the cars following to get up close to not get thrown around with turbulence and drag buffeting coming off that was causing uh, trouble with the front of the cars and stability and whatnot. Uh, taking those Kardashians off helped the looks, but certainly did not help the racing. And so while the cars, I would say, look better than ever, in this DW12 era, my friend, uh, IndyCar continues to keep working and keep working with Firestone as well, in particular on the front tires, talking speedway here, to try and get back to a place where passing can happen more frequently and more organically. Uh, let's see, Simon Rafi. Uh, we're, let's, I'm just trying to look at some of the other questions we have here. Uh, Simon, I'm going to read yours. It might be the last. It might not, but we've only got a couple more to go. Uh, 
simple question, but one that's bugged me for quite a time. Why is it IndyCar spelled I-N-D-Y-C-A-R and not IndyCar, I-N-D-I-C-A-R? The big race isn't in Indianapolis, I-N-D-Y-A-N-A-P-L-P-O-L-I-S. Great question that had never occurred to me before, Simon, but it probably should have because I'm the guy who, since I was a teenager, has wondered that why, if you are from England and speak English, that if you are from Spain, you don't speak Spanish. Again, I don't know. Uh, Oddly, it involves the letter I yet again. Um, I don't know. I... Looking at the spelling of Indy with a Y and Indy with an I, there's just something that feels wrong, like really wrong about that I being in there instead of a Y. So maybe like people in Spain don't speak Spanish, but speak Spanish. Uh, maybe in, in die car. I don't know. Indy car. I'm not sure why, uh, it's well hell donald davidson it's eleven twenty. he's definitely asleep i can't use that lifeline i don't know but it's a it's a great question i never pondered but i would say it doesn't bug me because the y just looks normal uh where do we go here uh steve garbasiak you ask a question if i've seen the new nascar commercial from fox i did during whatever which I think the last NFL game on Sunday, you say it strikes me as very well done and clever. Um, what do you think of it? Could we hope for something similar from NBC and IndyCar? Uh, yeah, I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was really well done. Plucked a lot of, you know, messaging points and heartstrings. Um, here's what I know. And so that was Fox. You mentioned, I know that there are so many people, who are a part of the NBC Sports slash IMS production team that are ridiculously talented and creative that they could absolutely and with great ease match, if not top, this aforementioned NASCAR commercial. I, based on what I see coming out, don't believe that IndyCar is as important to them as NASCAR is to Fox. And that's not a criticism. It's just a statement of how I see value placed and would say, therefore, it would surprise me if the same amount of time, talent, and financial resources uh, were to be allocated to do something better, uh, same or better for IndyCar. So, I mean, NASCAR is a big thing, man. You're trying to ramp up people to watch it during massively watched NFL um, playoff games, you're probably going to push pretty hard to do something spectacular. Uh, Knowing how big of a property is NASCAR happens to be for Fox and that it follows to one week after the Super Bowl, whatever it is, um, timing makes sense there. Uh, Yeah, we'll have to see if NBC Sports feels the same about IndyCar as we get ready for barber uh let's close here um doogie dave you sent you sent in one here i already grabbed one of yours so you're asking about uh indycar going to the uk if you want me to get to that send that in for another episode um 
I'm going to finish here with one from Flying Donkey 04 on Reddit. Anytime I have to read a screen name and it gets a little bit of accent, you know it's from Reddit. Uh, the person's name is Rob, by the way. Thanks, Rob. It says, Marshall, first time, long time here. Thanks, Rob. It says, I know a lot of drivers are not fans of yellow flags and closing the pits, but I am a big fan of it. Introducing randomness is exciting, and I like it when it occasionally rewards teams that are willing to gamble. That, and it's kind of fun to see Will Power or Alexander Rossi be pissed off at teams that jump ahead of them on pit stop gambles. That right there, the sole reason to never change this rule. Uh, by the way, uh, some of you apparently are tired of Will Power doing the little face match uh, video, movie, whatever type clips. I just say keep him coming. The dude is, th- this is the true Will Power. He's finally letting you see how screwed up he is but uh, screwed up in a good way right doesn't have to be bad he's mental he's always been he's just not hiding it so that's the thing i've seen a couple folks send some grumpy stuff and look this is honest reflection of this guy and i love it i've always loved him this is no different this is the real willpower that i know you're finally getting to see all of it so if you're, quote, willpower fans and you're grumpy about it, you don't know willpower. So just sharing. Keep going, Will. You're insane, dude. Uh, he says, that being said, I th- had a thought a year ago when watching a NASCAR race due to the nature of how tires are changed two at a time. Uh, is this still the case? I've watched NASCAR in a few years. You and me, brother. Uh, some teams gamble and change two tires instead of four. I know that the pit crew setup and hydraulic jack system is totally different in, in IndyCar. But hypothetically, if you could only change two tires at a time in IndyCar, would there be a particular scenario at certain tracks where a team would gamble with only changing two tires? Would this still be plausible? Or is the rate of tire degradation so high that this is not reasonable? Does my question reminds me of that race that Ryan Hunter Ray won at Iowa in 2014, yellow flag pit stop when the leader stayed out on worn tires? That was a crazy finish. <sighs> I guess it really depends. Uh, the rear tires take more time and effort to change. If you have someone running around to the outside to change one of them, uh, they're bigger and heavier and a little clunkier. So depending on what two tires you might change, uh, it really depends. If we're talking ovals, the right sides tend to wear the most. I'm overstating the obvious. So if you're changing a right front and a right rear, uh, it's not going to be any faster if you ignore the inside tires. Uh, Whereas if there was some reason to only change the fronts, that would be the fastest. But yeah, you'd then have a pretty significant balance mismatch, I would have to believe. In terms of grip from front and rear, that car might not be the happiest thing to drive. So I might be missing some other angle here, Rob, but I can't really think of any real significant scenarios where kind of going NASCAR gamble two-tire would really reward you uh, too much in IndyCar since we do have four-tire changers compared to just the two that do one side and run around to the other. So I don't think the time-saving would really be there. But I love the fact that we are thinking, brother, and you're trying to apply stuff even if it doesn't fully work. So 
keep thinking of those things and send them in. All right, this is it. We're done with part one. Holy poop. Uh, I thought it was going to be two hours, and it's not, and that makes me so happy. Let's say a big thank you, as always, once more to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and most of all, truly most of all, you all. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this with me each week. I really enjoy it. And, yeah, uh, part two. Yeah, I can't promise it's going to be under two hours based on all the news that's coming. So, But I look forward to recording that as soon as I can. And I can't wait to get our first Week in IndyCar guest episode going as well on Wednesday. So, until then, whenever then is, I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is a little thing that we all do together. Thank you for listening.